Hello, welcome to the One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ojano. So for today, we are going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 86th Academy Awards. That film is The Great Beauty, or La Grande Bellezza in its original language, co-written and directed by Paolo Sorrentino. So before we go on, I hope you all stay safe and stay healthy as you all stay at home. And yeah, that's pretty much it. And if you ever feel alone, please don't. You're not alone. I mean, physically you may be bad. There are so many people you can reach out. Hopefully that can help survive these times. And yep, going back to the great beauty, this is this was Italy's 11th win and 28th nomination. So this film is about Jeb Gambardella, a one-time writer living in high society, who celebrates his 65th birthday. And during a party, he realizes that the majority of his life is composed of parties and women and parties and women. And it's been like a meaningless life. So he then has several encounters with people in his life. So that's his journey towards discovering the titular Great Beauty. So that's a very quick summary of The Great Beauty. So our guest for this episode is from the United States. He's a writer at In Session Film and Filmotomy and co-host of Academy Queens. So please welcome Mr. Brandon Stanwyck. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for saying yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And can you tell our listeners where can they find you and your work? Well, um, I'm on Twitter, so you can follow me at Brandon Stanwyck. Um, you can follow Academy Queens at Academy underscore Queens. And that's... Um, an Oscars podcast that I co-host. Um, we are right now going through the lead and supporting actresses. Um, we take a year and we discuss the nominated performances. And then at the end, we rank the categories, the nominees from our fifth favorite to our favorite, the person who we would give the Oscar to. So um, we're about to go into recording on our next season, which is the actresses of the 2010s. So we're almost to the present when it comes to the actresses. So that's really exciting. Yeah, be sure to check that out because to be honest, aside from foreign language film, my personal favorite category is best actress slash supporting actress. And it's like a casual thing that I do to, to rank performances in mm -hmm. those categories for fun when I'm bored. So yeah, so now let's go to like general thoughts I want to know your what um, your general feels or thoughts about The Great Beauty. So what do you think of this film? So this is actually the first time watching it for me. I, for some reason, The Great Beauty is a film that just slipped through the cracks for me. Back when it was nominated, I just didn't get around to watching it. And then the Oscars came and went. And I refocused my attention on the next batch of films. And The Great Beauty just passed me by somehow. So when you invited me on for this episode, um, it was really exciting getting to finally watch something that I just hadn't seen for what, seven or so years. And um, yeah. it's a very fascinating film, I must say. Um, it's very gorgeous. I mean, it starts out right away with these very big, sweeping, opulent camera movements, capturing the beauty of these old monuments and buildings in Rome. 
Rome being one of the oldest cities in the world. So a lot of the things that we're seeing here have stood for centuries. And um, right away after we get these big movements, uh, we cut right to this dance party happening on a rooftop at night with um, neon lights and like dubstep techno music and everyone's having a ball. And there's a really cool juxtaposition between the old and the new, which uh, becomes a major theme of this film. So um, I'm not sure that I really enjoyed the movie. I know we'll get into that a little later, but it's one that I liked looking at and it um, explores some interesting ideas. So how do you feel about it? Um, well, it's, it's like a fantastic woman. It, the title itself sets it up for such, you know, expectations. And if we're going to go with the title, The Great Beauty, like, yeah, it is a gorgeous film. Uh, the first time I saw this was way back in 2013, 14. I mean, I, I did not even, I did not even had the chance to tweet <laughs> my initial thoughts about it at the time. So like, all right, let's start from scratch. Um, yeah, I totally agree that this film is so ambitious in how it told the story and it's such a visual, you know, the storytelling is very visual. A lot of the themes are being suggested through its cinematography and lighting and blocking and it's a grandiose production I must say like I feel like the film when it's on an energetic scene like the party scene it never lets go but at the same time you mentioned a lot about the contrasts like um, traditional and modern and then I also noticed like big music and then stretches of silence so there's a lot of contrasting that's going on. However, this time, I... <laughs> my problem with this film is that I cannot connect to its protagonist. And that is... I don't know, but I cannot remember if I ever actually connected to the protagonist at the beginning because... You know, when, like you said, when you watch it, the thing that you remember are the visuals and it is so visually striking. But yeah, I had a problem connecting this time. Um, what do you think of this protagonist? Um, well, I, I agree with you. I also had a difficult time really relating to him. I wonder if that has to do with our age um, because um, Jeff it's he's turning 65 that's what the party is in the beginning it's his 65th birthday party and it's this moment in time when he reaches this milestone year in his life when he starts to have all these existential thoughts about what has he done with his life where is he going from here because his time is limited at 65 you're more than halfway finished with your life realistically speaking so um, maybe it's because you and I are still in our youth, let's say, that we're having a hard time relating to him. Perhaps in a few decades, uh, we might um, rewatch this movie and get it in a new way. But um, I also had a hard time relating to him. Uh, Jeb is also a pretty low-key character for the most part. Um, he's in a pretty comfortable place in his life, I would say. Uh, he's made his living as a writer, mostly as a journalist. I want to say he had one big hit 
novel that got a lot of critical acclaim and won a major award. And, you know, he had his 15 minutes of fame, but for the most part, he has made his living telling other people's stories. And I think that factors in to this existential moment in his life where he realizes that instead of focusing on his own art, so much of his creativity has been getting poured into other people's art and telling their stories. So I think that's part of where his, um, his mindset comes in. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about what you said about maybe us not relating to due to age and yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think I had that thing with a more, I mean, more on that next week. I mean, it grew on me and I'm not that old yet, but it, it, the time gave me the understanding, but I think here it's not really the age. It's more of like the class of this character, mm. like the excessive extravagance of the lifestyle of, of the high society. I just could not sink my teeth in it. I mean, that's the point. I mean, the film was really relishing on showing, um, the, excesses the decadence of this lifestyle and how at first it might seem enticing and enjoyable and all fun but as the character really progressed he realizes that it's all shallow there this is empty empty fun and he's 65 he's lived his life like this and he still there's a hollowness in himself so yeah i mean I don't want to reduce it in a way, but I just, I've never really been a party guy. I don't know if that makes sense that I just could not connect to that. I mean, so, but yeah, something, something clicked with me, I think halfway through, um, there is this one conversation with a friend, um, when, and then he said the line that Rome can really waste your time. Mm. Um, and suddenly, for some reason, I just felt that pain and it, it just clicked with me halfway through. So then I started really engaging. So, you know, I mean, it's it was a bit late that I started really relating to the story. But yeah, I think even with that age, I mean, the age really gives perspective. But we, I think, I don't know, I, I would not assume to say, but... Sometimes we do reach parts in our lives where you, th we think if, where are we? Or like, how have we been doing? Or what's the point of it all? Um, how do you think this film handled that, that, that conversation about finding meaning in life? Or like, was it worth it, the journey that he's had? I mean, in relation to your own, or did you have that? experience with this film yeah there's um there's a, a supporting character in this movie that i think sums up some of those ideas pretty well um it's a he's a friend of jeff's i can't recall his name but he's a playwright and um he's adapting this great work of literature this old novel and um jeff has this conversation with him where he's like, why are you rewriting this classic famous piece of literature that everyone already knows? Why don't you write your own story? And 
this guy goes ahead and adapts that play anyway. And I think it really sums up this idea that you're talking about, about finding your own way versus using other people's um, work and livelihoods and sort of thriving off of them. Um, there's also those scenes with Jeff and his friends where they, they seem to get together and drink and just talk about philosophical life things a lot. A lot. Uh, more, <laughs> a lot. Like they, it seems like something they do at least once a week. Um, I can't say that's something that I engage in, but um, I have a feeling it's, these people have the same conversations all the time and it's, uh, they act like it's news, but um, that's another example there where, uh, of course, I'm just speculating here based on what we've been presented with, but I have a feeling that all these people are kind of just stymied where they are, that they're not really advancing in any way artistically and they just get together, they drink their wine and they talk about the same things every single week as if it's new. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot going on in a lot of these people's lives, at least not in the way they seem to think it is. When thinking about it at on a very shallow thinking, it feels like they're living a very exciting life because, you know, who doesn't want to party every, is it every night or whatever? And, I, I, is it right? Like the, the playwright was the one that's always dancing with the dancer, dancers. Mm. Yeah, that guy. Um, but yeah, when you mentioned that, it's almost like they're doing this all the time. It's a cycle. Um, and he and they got stuck in that cycle, which a cycle that of mostly composed of uh, very shallow pleasures and emptiness. I mean, that's, that is a pretty weird situation to be in because, you know, they've been spewing a lot of those deep, quote unquote, deep conversations. But then if they're really engaging and absorbing and really believing in what they're saying, why would someone that's been ingrained in that system be questioning about his life his meaning in life um do you think those those deep conversations those philosophical conversations did they work or do you think maybe they were what are you what do you, how do you feel about the screenplay maybe so i like that you put deep in quotes because i kind of got that feeling while watching the movie um i don't know if i'm allowed to curse on your podcast but Go ahead. Uh, their conversation their conversations are mostly bullshit um i think that's intentional on the part of the writer uh and director i think they're meant to be bs conversations that people who fancy themselves as intellectuals have these are people who think they're the smartest people in every room that they're in uh that they are the most cultured that they are tastemakers and gatekeepers to the arts and culture scene of Rome. They think they know everybody and that everyone knows them. Uh, everyone that matters ought to know them and things like that. These are people who are very, uh, their heads are up their own asses, you could say. And um, they're, they're fake in a lot of ways. And I think that's purposeful. 
Um, I don't think that that was an oversight on the part of the filmmakers. I think a lot of the, uh, this film is very, oh, I, I mentioned that word, very deliberate in all of its, in, in writing on how hypocritical the situation is and how the style of the film also in some way. I mean, I, I, I noticed some uh, films that I remembered. Um, the Wolf of Wall Street. I don't know if you would have. I think The Wolf of Wall Street, I mean, there were criticisms about it glorifying the disgusting lifestyle of its characters. But mm -hmm. it helps the audience understand why the seduction in the first place. I mean, why would someone subject to that kind of lifestyle of, um, I forgot the word, but I think it works the same way in The Great Beauty is that when you have those uh, party scenes that are filmed in a very del deliberate way, like there are some shots where the ca characters are looking at the camera, some are in, in some way, it, it's, it's, I'm forgetting the word, but it's almost voyeuristic in some ways. I mean, you are going, it makes you understand why would someone get stuck in that because it's fun. But at the same time, the film slowly deconstructs that facade of, uh, of the high society through the eyes of this character, which is, yeah, I get his journey. I, I do. I mean, I, I love those kinds of... I mean, in a way, something like, something like Parasite as well. Parasite has done that, that deconstruction of high society and class. But I think in this case, I just did not have a strong emotional connection because we were always in the perspective of the people inside. And mm -hmm. yeah, so I have a sort of a detachment, but... Yeah, I totally agree that this film is so loaded. I mean, even if I'm struggling to connect to it emotionally at times, I mean, I did halfway through, uh, there's a lot of conversations that this film is trying to have and tackle. A lot of, what you mentioned, contrast. Um, I think it's so deliberate that they've always been, the film puts Rome in its... Um, not just background, but it's in the conversations. Like, I, there was this line where he, the character said, Rome has been a real disappointment. And then a while ago, I said, Rome can really waste your time. I'm not fit for the city and the life anymore. Everyone around here is dying. And I think Rome, I mean, slowly going to the themes, Rome kind of embodies decadence and at the same time this deeper uh, school of thought in a way that Rome is basically the home of the Roman Catholic Church and at the same time the lifestyles of the people there it's it's such a liberated lifestyle and a way of thinking so there is this clash of traditional you mentioned traditional and modern conservative and liberated and I'm wondering how that kind of environment can create a problem like this for a person who's living in that 
definitely had demonstrations environment where the clash of the two things and the contrast and the contradictions are strong and yet since it's almost in the dna of that city like you get to accept that contradiction and how does it sit well with you or doesn't it sit well at all um what do you think of the films how how it handled rome as a, as not just a setting but in a way and a character in its own yeah i was actually just going to say this film treats rome the city as if it is a character and a flawed character at that and a complex character mm-hmm. because there is a whole lot of um complicated ideas butting heads in this city as it's presented in the film like that opening scene at Jep's birthday party it feels very modern the lights and the music and the energy and yet when you take a step back and look at what's happening all the people at that party are i'm, I'm going to say 50 years older older and yet it feels like the kind of party that young people would be attending so right there you got a contrast visually and audio I don't know what the yeah. sound word, you know, that word is. Um because you got like this techno dubstep danced by older people lit by these purple and blue flashing neon spinning lights. And so Rome seems to be like a city that is in many ways set in its ways, like it's stuck in time. Um you got these old buildings that were constantly getting sweeping grand shots of that have been standing there for hundreds of years and will in all likelihood stand for many hundreds more and yet we have these people living in the city who are trying to adapt to the times and stay fresh and new and clear a path for the future of culture while the city is also conservative and trying to put all those people in a box and not allow them to move forward and kind of suffocates them any in a way. So I mean that that playwright character who we mentioned earlier, if I remember correctly, he's the one in the end who decides to leave Rome because yeah. he he realizes he can't flourish in this city that won't let him flourish. And this goes back to why he's constantly adapting classical mythological texts because that's almost what the city expects of him to continue to deify these old tales that were written before our grandparents 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 were born but he doesn't want to do that but he can't do it in Rome because Rome while it likes to think that it's liberal and uh culturally moving forward it is in many ways still kind of holding on to that facade of the ancient times you know it's a there's a whole lot of contradictions and complexities going on within this city that is being treated as a character within the story itself yeah i th- and i think to go with that point that you mentioned a lot of a lot of this film had you know, uh, shots of architecture and especially the Colosseum, uh, which is mm-hmm. like a recurring imagery in the film, which is 
<laughs> and I haven't seen gladiators, so I needed to research what was the Colosseum for. All right, um, and then it's I I saw that it's a it's a place of spectacle and entertainment at the same time. But now it's 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 the remains. You know, it's it's like a fossilized uh, memorabilia of the past, and in some ways, the characters in this film are. Um, remains of the past of so much enjoyment and they're still trying to live that enjoyment but I don't know um, does it feel wrong that those characters are part the characters that are mostly aged are partying like the kids I'm trying to rap and trying to word it the right way <laughs> I think I understand what you're saying um it's a bit unusual and it's unexpected because it actually took me a few minutes into that dance party sequence in the beginning to realize that all the people that I was watching dance like they're in a nightclub are middle-aged or older. And um, once it hit me, it's all I could see. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure what word you're searching for either. Cause now I can't find it either, <laughs> but it is um, an interesting, uh, visual concept that um how do you say it? sorrentino is that how you say the director's name sorrentino um yes. yeah there's there's a lot of vanity to this movie in the way that it's told and the characters in it um these people these tastemaker folks in rome that jeff is friends with they think of themselves as being always fresh they're always going along with the up-and-coming trends this party the way that it's designed and the music that's being played it's trendy it's what was really hot in 2012 or 2013 whenever this movie is set i don't recall but um yeah it, it does seem a little odd that uh these these are not the people who you would think would be there behaving this way but they see no problem with it because they are just as vain as the city is and just as vain as the director telling the story. And I don't think that's unintentional. I'm sure Sorrentino is doing all this on purpose. Yeah, and we've been talking about age. I think relating to the characters mostly in their latter years in their life, age and death, um is also a big part of the film's um theme on how in some ways the death death in this film represented in so many ways death of the past and actual death of characters it's a thing that confronts the characters like puts them into a reality check that well you know time's up or not time's up but you time is coming and yeah it puts things in perspective and the birthday element in itself it like it instigates the thought of emptiness for the lead character two questions first is um i maybe i did not catch it but was there a moment in the birthday that made him realize how empty he was or was it a sudden realization i'm not sure that there was a single inciting incident 
for him to have that light bulb moment. If there was, I did not detect it either on this um, first watch for myself. I think it just might be the birthday party as a whole and reaching that milestone age. I don't think there was one specific thing that anyone said or did to him. I think it just kind of, it kind of hit him. I remember that shot where they're, the men are lined up in one line and the women are lined up in another and they're facing each other and doing this sort of line dance thing. And at one point, yeah. And at one point, Jeff kind of steps into the middle and he's sort of in this gauntlet in the middle of this line. And I feel like visually that's the moment where we're supposed to realize that he is realizing something, but um, I'm not sure if there is any one event within this larger event that um, gave him that light bulb moment though. Yeah, I was thinking of that because I think the film kind of delayed his his entrance and then when he was introduced, you know, it was, he was kind of happy, you know, dancing with a cigarette in his mouth and like, you know, shaking his shoulders. Mm-hmm. But then he had that moment in the party where he just suddenly stood in the middle of the crowd and had his inner monologue. I This being my second watch, but the first watch was like, six years ago so i can't remember i was trying to think what clicked in his mind like why why now why the 65th birthday why this specific birthday um and second question um those thoughts of like assessing life um in a in, in a birthday do you also feel the same way I mean, in a way, um, I mean, I'm about a year and a half away from turning 30. So, I mean, that's another like milestone year, you could say. And I mean, I've been having some similar thoughts. So I guess in a way I did relate to Jeff a little bit while watching this movie because I've been um, having similar ideas pass through my head. Like I keep going back to this playwright friend of his and not telling his own stories because I used to write all the time in my teenage years and early twenties. And there just hit a point where I just kind of stopped doing it. I kind of had this, what's the point idea that kind of solidified itself in my head. And it took a few years now for me to get around it and start actually writing creative fiction again. So um, I guess you could say I've had similar, um, thoughts maybe it is that approaching 30 year mark that's uh fueling some of those but um i guess in a way you could say i related to jeff in that regard i see um because i was thinking i think the last time i really had like a deep thinking moment in my birthday was two years ago (laughs) i don't know what happened to me this past two birthdays like nothing happened uh no 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 no. i didn't yeah I haven't had a birthday yet this year. Oh my God, I, I forgot my own birthday. What's happening? Uh, yeah, I think birthday in general to many people kind of brings those thoughts in a person's mind. Um, just here in this film, it's the age is a reminder to these characters that this thing that you're enjoying, this company that you have with each other, no matter how true or fake this is, it's going to end. And I remember that scene, is it, is it called a funeral or a wake where, um, Jeb became like a pallbearer 
and that's mm-hmm. one of those very rare moments when he showed like a semblance of emotion and and the, the people in the film were also the characters in the film I mean were also surprised by that moment because I think for the majority of the film he is like an observation he wasn't really showing a lot of those uh, it's weird because it's it's a struggle in its own way, but it's not like a struggle that he's going through a lot. I think the problem is he's not going through much stuff. So mm-hmm. that moment for me was striking because, yeah, the one those one of those moments that the film came like openly emotional, and I was affected by how Jack became emotional in that moment of death face-to-face yeah you're right jeff doesn't really um express himself in the way that we are accustomed to protagonists in stories expressing themselves he kind of leads his life as this sort of objective intellectual observer because that's sort of how he's made his career being this person who writes about culture and nightlife and uh, all that. So we do get very few moments of genuine emotion from Jeff, or at least I didn't detect him. I'm as you did not either. I'm hearing. Yeah. He's not a very expressive guy, Jeff. Most of the time he seems to be very in his head, which um, I think can be very difficult to film and very difficult to convey to the audience. Perhaps he is feeling a lot of things, um, but he doesn't exactly let us in all that much. And the camera work seems to be more interested in everything that's going on around him as opposed to what's going on inside him. So it's a little difficult to connect to Jep in that regard in this movie. But um, that funeral scene is one of the instances where we do see some of his inner feelings coming out. Do you feel that the style of the film, in as much as it is so wonderful to behold, like, oh my gosh, when you watch it, like, it's a, it's a treat. It's a visual treat. Do you think that also hindered connecting more to the protagonist? Um, maybe in a way. It's kind of funny. Um, the, the title is almost ironic. In a way, it, the movie focuses so much on the visuals and all of these uh, structures that we're supposed to find beautiful. That's so often we overlook the people who exist there. Jep and his friends and all the other people of Rome being those people, they sort of get overshadowed by the overwhelming history of the place where they live. So we don't really get too much of the human side of what's going on in this city because so much of it is being um, compartmentalized and covered up. And I, I think it's hard for some people to, to break through in that way. And perhaps we're seeing that represented through Jep, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, guilty. <laughs> I had a hard time yeah. uh, penetrating yeah. it emotionally. I think when the film kind of sets its course into deconstructing this illusion of um, like extreme enjoyment or something like that, and then our way into the story is such a passive character, it makes the deconstruction harder. And that can cause... Well, I'm also trying to in, to think of other films. that I think that can cause a certain form of detachment when your character is supposedly going through a lot. I mean, that it's a choice. I mean, respect that choice. But yeah, I think that was my hurdle. And I have not seen a single Fellini film <laughs> as of this point. Mm -hmm. And I know that Fellini was such a big influence to Sorrentino, not just in making this film, but in filmmaking in general. So I have to resort to a knockoff of Fellini, which is Nine, <laughs> um, the musical. Mm -hmm. And that's also an interesting uh, going with that film, how sex and uh, women, sorry, women and sex and religion seen through the eyes of one man who seems like He's have he has everything, but yet finds a hollowness inside. Um, I recall that. Um, what do you th how what do you think of the films tackling women and sex in the perspective of this character? Uh, through Jeff. Um, well, there's that scene where he uh, kind of hooks up with a woman, and then they have this conversation. Uh, post intercourse where uh, she t reveals to him that she takes pictures of herself and then he kind of coyly asks if there's naked pictures of her and she says yeah and goes to get her computer and when she comes back he's gone and then it cuts to uh, him fully clothed walking the streets of Rome uh, presumably having just ghosted on her yeah. um yeah. so the the movie doesn't treat women great there's also that friend quote unquote from his circle that he kind of tells off at one point uh she kind of thinks she's a little high and mighty and he sort of for lack of a better term puts her in her place yeah. and she storms out um i think my probably my favorite female character in this movie is his editor the um the woman he writes for uh i can't i don't know that actress's name but i think she's fantastic um i'd love to see her in more things she's kind of fiery and i really dig that but i wonder how i i wonder what the decision to cast a little person to play that role i wonder how that came into the conversation because that actress is um a, of a smaller stature and uh I'm not sure what if that meant something symbolically in the casting or if she's just a friend of the director, perhaps. Um, but it's an interesting choice. I am I should have I should have researched that name of that actress, but yeah, she um pops out of the cast and I remember her in the party scene because I think the is it the first time that we see her, she's being thrown in the air. So like she's yeah. the life of the party. And then also she's the one left 
at the party she was calling the people yeah, when she passes out so yeah she passes out and then wakes up and the party's over i think dawn the sun is coming up and she's calling for everyone and everyone's yeah. gone <laughs> I think, kind of sad but also kind yeah. of funny i think that is deliberate because mm-hmm. that kind of makes her all you know that would always make her like one of the others and mm. in some way those kinds of moments I think that's why Jep can confide to her to some extent because she maybe she kind of understands how to, you know, not always be the center of attention. And I think Jep has always been in a center of the attention for the longest time and he's in high society. And once he... I think that character helps him in finding his way. I don't know. I mean... Mm-hmm. Not not maybe in a deliberate way, but in the way he, she kind of nudges into that direction. Another major female character in this film was the nun that's been oh. called the saint. What do you think of this character, basically? Uh, so visually, she's very striking. Um, she's very old. I'm not sure how much of that was makeup versus just the actress's appearance yeah. so i don't want to be judgmental but she is um she's quite elderly and i think that's intentional because i think she's meant to represent this conservative deep rooted um connection to the church and part of what keeps rome in the past um but the actress who plays her it's she steals the spotlight every time she's on screen. I mean, your eye goes directly to her. Um, I'm very curious how much of that was makeup, to be honest. But uh, I was fascinated by that character and what she represents. Um, she's definitely, I think, under makeup. <laughs> I think because in the film, she's 104. But at the time of the film, she's around 70. Mm. And right. yeah, I, I, I did not realize that. I mean... I only realized that when you asked about the age and I did a quick search. Like, okay, mm-hmm. there's a lot of makeup involved. Um, I think the character of the nun was such a great addition to his journey. And I think it kind of completes his uh, path towards discovering the great beauty of life. Because these, I think him and the nun, they're both um, looked up on by the people around mm-hmm. them um i mean jeb is like the life of the party and it, it's interesting that the, they were when he commanded you know they sing la, uh, dance la colita which uh, the english title is follow the leader i don't know if it's follow the leader the title but yeah that's the lyric so like you know he is that leader and at the same time on the other hand you have this nun which She's still living now, but everyone calls her a saint already, and people look up to them both. But they are in contrast in life. You have your Jep, who is living a life of excess, and then you have this nun who insists on live to live in poverty. But mm-hmm. it seems like out of these two, it's the nun who has the clarity on her purpose in life, and she is almost like a mythical creature here because. She has her own scenes and even people around her don't really know 
her next move all the time. So yeah, I think this pits Jeb into like an interesting comparison of how when one chooses his or her destiny in life and you know there's a certain fulfillment to the choice that she has done uh, so she's reached 104 and she's still going strong yeah i'm just remembering how that character yeah yeah and she's at 104 she has roughly 40 years on Jeb. So I wonder if that recontextualizes his age for him. Because when we meet her, it's in the final quarter or third of the film, if I remember correctly. It's It takes a while until we actually meet the nun. And she's much older than him. So I wonder how much of that informs where he sees himself in life and what he has ahead of him and how much he has ahead of him. Um, is that dance that you mentioned, is that the train? The train that they... The line. Connect. Yeah, the line. So um, I remember there was a line where someone said that their train or their line is the best one in Rome. Yes. And yet someone else mentions that the train goes nowhere because they essentially just go in a circle around the room. And that sort of plays back into this idea that you kind of get trapped in a city like Rome as a modern thinker and artist because it might be the greatest train in Rome but yet you're just moving in a circle yeah it, it you know? yeah there's no progress and when you live that kind of lifestyle um yeah I think the lone the film exposes the loneliness of these characters which is really weird when you think about how how literally they are so they're always together and people know one another one another and yet there is a looming loneliness and i that's the thing that i think the film got well has has done well even if i haven't fully connected to it in the first like 15 minutes is that there is an overarching sense of loneliness in the lives of these characters so even in, mm-hmm. after the party and there are some dark humor in the script sometimes yeah. once in a while there is a loneliness to it and yeah it, there's a feeling of dissatisfaction to the lives of these characters thinking of how and maybe I'm thinking of the lighting of the film on how expressive and yet mostly dark these uh, sh- the shots of the characters are yeah um, I was not able to fully explore uh, the political aspect of this because Sorrentino was very deliberate about class but at the same mm-hmm. time he is coming from a perspective of uh, this was released in 2013 Italy has just uh, finished like a long term reign of Silvio Berlusconi from 1994 to 2011 and I've read that there are some economic crisis that's been going on during that time so I I bet <laughs> that there are more subtexts to dig from that I was just not able to go through but yeah it's interesting to how to tackle if that's if that's my not nine if that's where I'm coming from how they handle how they handle economic crisis and class through making a film that's about 
it's it's almost obscene how excessive the lifestyle are. I mean, you see random images mm. like giraffe and oh yeah. Yeah, like what's happening? And then statues and um yeah, a lot of excessiveness in their life and yet it's almost nothing inside. Yeah, it's it's a lot of opulence that ultimately signifies nothing. Yeah. Have you been to Rome? Mm. No, I've never been to Rome. I Have see. you? I I wish. I mean, um I, I wish, but I've never been there and uh, are there any other themes of this film that you may have noticed that I did not because um I think we covered the big ones um that I had in mind. You know, the idea of time and past and present and all that the contrasts and contradictions. And I think the one thing we mentioned that we failed to mention is the lead actor, Tony Servillo mm. as Jeff Gambardella. What did you think of his performance? Well, um, I mean, kind of like we said earlier, it's not a super expressive performance. It's sort of um, solemn and um, down to earth. So in a way, I kind of admire that, that it's not particularly showy, but at the same time, I don't feel like we're given very much to peel back. Because with a lot of low-key, subtle performances, there's usually something to dig for. And I'm sure Jep has a lot of depth, that there's a lot going on in his mind and heart. But I struggled to find the places to chip away at that wall and see who he is on the inside. So I'm not particularly thrilled with the performance, but I like that they went with a more um, low-key approach to it. I think it works. in The performance works in the context of the film, but like you said... Mm -hmm. um it's hard to fully understand a character when everything is i mean every every possible way in for us in his character is just suggested it's never really deeply explored i mean the funeral scene was one scene and there's not really a lot of emotions to give us a clue i mean there are internal dialogue sometimes but yeah He's a tough character to break into, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder how I'll feel rewatching this movie like ten years from now or twenty years from now. I wonder if I'll see things in Jeff that I wasn't able to see at age twenty-eight. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, how many? What, seven years. So maybe after a while, I would watch this again to see if. Uh, this age us as viewers does it affect our response to this character yeah so what are your like favorite scenes or memorable scenes from this film um hmm i suppose those those conversations with jeff and his uh members of the roman intelligentsia are interesting um how how smart and deep a lot of those people think they are. I found those scenes amusing, but I'm, I'm honestly struggling to find a scene that I would call my favorite. 
the scene with the performance artist where she rams her head into a stone wall was um, jarring. Yeah. <laughs> so I did not expect that to happen where she like, literally runs face first into a stone wall for the art capital a, uh, that was neat. But other than that, um, I'm struggling to find a scene that really like stands out as a scene. How about you? We've been talking about, I've been mentioning this, uh, in a, a lot, the, the party scene, I think it's just a whole, I think that was the command on how that scene was executed, it just encapsulates a lot of the themes of the film, a lot of what's going on in the lives of these characters, and especially Jeff's character. It's almost enticing. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could go in a party like that. I mean, but yeah. um, in, a, in a way, yeah, that sequence just excites me every time. I mean, Maybe I remember some moments when maybe I have not watched a full film, but just that scene, just on how incredible that film, that film, that scene was shot and put together. So mm-hmm. maybe that's... Yeah, that, that sequence is almost like a visual thesis statement yeah. for what the movie is about. Like so much of the ideas and the visual contradictions that you're going to see throughout this two and a half hour movie are presented in those first 10 or 15 minutes. And I guess like the whole chapter of the nun, I think Mm -hmm. just after me being like indifferent, (laughs) indifferent for like first 15 minutes. And then I connected the next 15 minutes. I think that chapter with the nun just, strengthened what the film was going for in a way wrapped it up in a very um solid way i think yeah that that just that juxtaposition of jeb and his realization when this nun enters his life yeah i i do love that um i just there's this one scene at, at the balcony when there were the birds oh the visual, okay the visual effects put me off (laughs) Uh uh-huh yeah but aside from that i think that whole chapter um you meant it's your you what you said a while ago that the the character of the nun really entered too late uh, not too late but late in the film Mm -hmm. do you think the great beauty would have worked as a miniseries and then that be like a finale episode Hmm. i mean it certainly got the length to break it up, but I'm not sure if I would want it to be. I'm not sure like dramatically, like plot wise, how you would turn the great beauty into episodic um, storytelling. It almost seems like one big grand gesture, Mm. the entire film. I feel like it would lose some of its impact if it were broken up. So, I mean, I guess you, the, the length is there. To be a three or four episode miniseries, but um, I don't think it's necessary. I'm not sure what you would gain from a miniseries that you wouldn't get from a film. I think in a way that The Irishman, I think The Irishman worked as a whole film, not a miniseries. I mean, what do you think of The Irishman? Do you think it could have been a miniseries or is the impact in its three and a half hour continuous storytelling? 
Um, I support longer films if the material's there and uh, it keeps the interest going. Um, I don't think something needs to be broken up into episodes just because it runs a little long. So I'm fine with an epic film. They kind of went out of style for a while, but it sounds like they're coming back. So um, I'm curious how filmmakers will uh, tackle that moving forward, given this uh, internet streaming age that we're in. But uh, I support Scorsese and telling his nearly four hour movie as one big thing. Yeah, I think there are just really stories where the accumulation of the hours continuous storytelling works. What do you think of the pacing of The Great Beauty? Because I think it's very deliberate pacing as well. Yeah. Um, so I will admit I found my mind wandering at times. Um, I didn't always feel completely engaged with what I was watching. The visuals are, of course, gorgeous throughout the movie. Um, it's like every frame is a Renaissance portrait. But in terms of dramatic impact and plot, I wasn't that engaged with it. So, I mean, you could say that the pacing could have been a detriment to me as a viewer. Um, I didn't feel as though I was keeping up with the movie. I thought I was the head of the movie at times. So, um, and I wanted the movie to catch up with me where I was. <laughs> so, um, it's a little slow for my taste for what we were presented with there's nothing wrong with a slower film but with this one I really needed it to catch up it didn't feel like it was earning its um, slow pace for me do you think the film could have do you think there were moments in the film that could have been shortened or trimmed or just dropped altogether um perhaps uh I'm not sure exactly what those would be. So I feel like so much of that deliberate slowness is Sorrentino reminding people what this movie is about from like a, like a visual cinematic standpoint. I guess you could say it becomes repetitive at times. Yeah. So maybe there are instances that could be trimmed or omitted altogether for the people who've already got it. And if so, and if you don't have it yet, you're probably not going to. So I can't pinpoint a moment or sequence off the top of my head, but I'm sure there were times that uh, things didn't need to be happening in the movie, considering it's what, two and a half hours long. Um, and I don't know that the plot really warrants two and a half hours, yeah. considering how character-based this uh, story is. Um, I, I did feel those, like, all right. Uh, I mean, those moments, like, okay, got that. <laughs> Let's move on. Those moments, I did feel mm -hmm. that, and I think this film would have, I think this film would have fared well under two hours. Yeah, I mean, but nothing against uh, longer, long films. I mean, like you said, if the story warrants it, then go ahead. I mean, before The Great Beauty, I mean, I watched it, it's already a Monday here in the Philippines, but I watched it yesterday in the afternoon. And I watched The Great Beauty after The Grandmaster, a film that's also over two hours. 
Yeah, I, I don't usually have complaints with length, but I have, I think those two, I tweeted it at, they're very gorgeous films, but I do have issues with the pacing and I think the great, with the case of The Great Beauty, it can be compacted and still be powerful or me, I mean, we'll never see if maybe what scenes would be dropped. I mean, who knows, maybe we would even have a more powerful film if they shortened it a bit. Yeah, I feel like, uh, we're proving Sorrentino's point right now with our contradictions. Ah. I feel like we we both said uh, said one thing and then said something in the next sentence that completely contradicted what we just previously said about film length and pacing and visuals and all that. So I feel like the maybe that's part of the great beauty's charm as well. Or yet, or maybe he's proving a point on how what uh, how we felt is his point, like. It's too much, but yeah. We're uh, no better than Jep's friends <laughs> drinking wine and spewing bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have any other thoughts about the Grey Beauty? Um, yeah. Um, I don't think so. I think that we pretty much uh, painted our own portrait of this film. Perché le radici sono importanti. think we can now go to its journey to the Oscar gold uh, it premiered at Cannes it was released in May 21 in Italy and then November 15th in limited release in the United States again this was Italy's 11th win and 20th nomination I forgot if Italy was the most awarded country I should probably know that fact by now because I'm covering this category it won Globe BAFTA and nominated for Critics Choice Domestic box office is 2.8, no, 2.9. International is 21.4. Worldwide is 24.2. I think that's pretty good for a film like this. Yeah, yeah I'd I, say so. Yeah. And I would assume that some other countries did not even screen this film. So, mm-hmm. were you already uh, following the Oscar race as early as 2013? Or when did you start following uh-huh. the Oscars? Well, I suppose I was following it sort of passively. Um, not in the way that I do now. I mean, I was sort of paying attention to what movies were being talked about and trying to seek those out. And um, especially after they got nominated, trying to see them. Uh, The Great Beauty, as I said in the beginning, was one that kind of slipped through the cracks for me back then. And I'm glad I got to finally check it out for this. But um, I was paying attention in a way. Uh, I remember The Great Beauty being the movie that was probably going to win this category. It seemed to be the one that was at the top of everyone's list and it seemed almost undeniable after it took the Golden Globe and BAFTA and all that. Um, It seemed like it was unstoppable at that point. So um, I was sort of paying attention, but not really. But I recall not being surprised that the great beauty took the gold in the end. Yeah, um... I was at film school during that time, and I think in film school, there is a certain, like, 
there is a film of the moment <laughs> we're like mm -hmm. oh let's watch her <laughs> or or let uh, the, right yeah those those moments um um the great beauty was well you know it was it was there i mean no one's really in my, in my circle no one's really passionate about it but some have seen it and i think at the time since i think the general problem or issue with people caring about the foreign language film sometimes it's the access to these films that mm -hmm. makes it hard to really you know just even care about this category and i think um yeah i was not surprised i i was tr i'm trying to remember now my predictions during the time i was not surprised when it won but at the same time this year was messy as heck for this category there were films that were not nominated that had buzz and there were films that were not mm -hmm. even submitted by their countries i think i think that's even like the bigger chunk of <laughs> of the discussion but yeah let's go first with the nominees so our nominees are the broken circle breakdown from belgium the hunt from denmark the missing picture from cambodia and omar from palestine have you seen all of these four? The Broken Circle Breakdown is the only one that I have not seen. Um, I've seen the others. Um, I, I, I'll just start there and I will, fi I will finish off very quickly. Um, this is the last film that I've seen from these five nominees. And it's fine, but I don't, I don't get why it needs a nomination. I think it's just, it's, mm. it's fine. It's a story about... Um, child mortality and how it affects marriage and there's also discussions about faith and had good music but it, it's just fine it never really mm -hmm. stood out and I know some people are fans of this film and great music but yeah it didn't work for me as like oh it didn't like oh it's in it's in the top five so it never really stood out in me that way so yeah Woo! Out of my system. Let's not go with the film. The remaining three. So, which one would you like to discuss first? The Hunt, The Missing Picture, or Omar? Um, we can start with um, The Missing Picture. Okay, from Cambodia. Yep. Yeah. So this was a fascinating little movie. Um, would you call this a documentary? Yes. I would think so too. I mean, it's told in a very um, unconventional way where the filmmaker who survived the Khmer Rouge uprising and subsequent genocide in Cambodia is now telling this story of what he experienced with uh, clay dolls or clay uh, people representing yeah. the story. It's almost told in a very, it kind of reminded me of like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, like the puppet portion of that show. I don't know if that's, I don't mean that in a condescending way. It was just a visual that like clicked in my head for some reason. And I kind of dig it because the filmmaker presents this very serious, very depressing, very important moment in time in a way that, again, I don't mean this in a condescending way, in a way that is digestible to children like to the masses, like a filmmaker telling this story very easily could have shown 
grotesque photographs and video and really tried to get a visceral rise out of the audience. And instead, he took this path of, I don't even know what to call it. It's, it's very almost quaint in the way that it's presented. So you have these clay dolls that don't move, but he gives them voice and films them as if he is making a motion picture made of still images. And you're presented with all the information you need to understand exactly how horrible the situation was without repulsing the audience or turning them off. There's so many people who I think will not finish, would, would not finish a documentary like this if they were given that real life imagery. But in this way, the director is almost making you paint the picture in your head as you, um, as you see it presented to you. I don't know, it's very strange, but I really dig this unconventional approach that uh, this guy had. How about you? Um, the first time I saw this was again in film school for a documentary class and <laughs> the version that we saw was the narration was in English. <laughs> like, okay, I thought foreign language film, but yeah. Uh, and then I was able to watch the original version of it and I think the film really is aside from its a harrowing, chilling, you know, story of how humanity was lost at the time. At the same time, there's so much love as when he was telling this story, because in the end, it's a story of him and his family and the people in the camps. There's so much love and intimacy and and I think the recreation is—it's a very creative choice to tell the story because I th I don't I don't know if there has there are really um, surviving footage during the time. I mean, what we see in the film are like propaganda clips that were filmed mm -hmm. to promote uh, Cambodia, um, but there is a rawness to it, but and the sincerity and it's. It's just such an intimate documentary. Like he is just telling you the story of how they lived their life and how he survived it, and with so much love and and um, it's not miserable, but it acknowledges the horrors of that unfortunate um, circumstance. I I'm so happy that this got in. Because I don't think a lot of people were predicting it to be nominated. And it's from Southeast Asia, so yay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it's more people should watch this. And it's really heartbreaking, but also touching. Um, mm -hmm. And then we have two, The Hunt and Omar. Do you want to talk about Omar? All right, let's go with Omar. Um, yeah, what do you feel about Omar? Um, I think so this was my, I, I think you asked me and then I just asked it back. Oh, that's okay. Um, so this was my first time watching Omar for this. And, um, 
it's a very thrilling little movie. Um, I didn't expect it to be quite so suspenseful and play out like, play out like, like almost a, a movie like The Departed or like an episode of Homeland or something. I didn't expect it to be quite so thrilling. Like there's some chase sequences that are quite, um, quite adrenaline pumping. Yeah. And um, it happens a few times. Uh, these moments of very fast uh, juxtaposed with these moments of stillness. Um, it's a cool little story. Uh, I dig it. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about the ending, but I'm sure we'll get into that in a, in a bit. But uh, how do you feel about Omar? Uh, well, I think the strength, the strongest parts of the film are definitely those chase sequences. It just shows uh, the expertise of the director in handling these kinds of sequences. Uh, I'm not. I think the geopolitics were handled well, but at the same time, it's also kind of broad. And I mm. mean, basing on the some of the films that were made about that tension in that area that geopolitical tensions from both sides i mean there are films from israel and palestine made about that it it feels kind of broad and unfortunately i think my, my least favorite part of the film is crucial to the storytelling which is the romantic subplot mm. i just feel like the film goes into a lull <laughs> when it goes to that story. I mean, how, how do you feel about a romantic subplot? Um, I kind of agree with you. Uh, it feels, it feels unnecessary at times, and yet it is so instrumental to our protagonist's decision making. So much of what he does is for Nadia, or rather, for his relationship with Nadia. And yet the scenes where they're together feel sort of phoned in mm -hmm. and uh, unnecessary in a way. So it's, it's kind of strange how that works. Um, with the politics, um, I agree with you as well there. Uh, the geopolitics of Palestine and Israel is presented in a very digestible way. And I don't think you need all that much um, prior information to understand what's happening in this movie. I'm not sure that Omar really presents any new ideas to its audience. And it's not really, it's using the issues with Palestine and Israel and the wall and the banks to build its plot. But I'm not sure outside of the broad strokes I'm not sure what exactly the movie's trying to say or if it's really trying to present an answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the, I think the film just utilized the geopolitics to the story and not really mm -hmm. say much about it. So it, you know, it, it's such a conflicting way because it's interesting, of, of course, when you watch the action scenes, like, yes, and you see, like, the, the motivations of the characters from both sides, like, okay, get that. But at the same time, it's not really detailed. And, you know, I, th 
and also the romantic subplot, another conflicting thing because it really propels the decisions of the characters forward until we reach the finale. And the film makes it really um, feel like it's a very focal point. Uh, it's a focal point of the mm-hmm. story. But at the same time, like those moments were like the least, the most uninspired parts of the film. And yeah, which is sad because it's not like it you know it's not something that if you know if 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 it's an uninteresting part of the film maybe i don't know check your phone or go to the comfort room it, it is so important but at the same time it's stuck in this like what happened between so i wonder do you find that the the young lady who plays nadia do you find her compelling or engaging at all as an actress because I kind of didn't. And I wonder if that hurt those scenes and made them feel less important than they probably should have. I think it doesn't help that she's mostly in the dark. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The character is mostly in the dark. That's why she's always like playing catching up or like don't doesn't know what's happening. And it kind of puts off the tension building because it's the, the narrative stops when it's always when it has her scenes but at the same time I think it's a broad performance that uh, maybe another actor or actress could have done a bit more so yeah, yeah we're not presented with much depth when it comes to that character yeah and it's weird because she's crucial um, mm-hmm. to the story. And um, you were saying something about the ending. Yeah, the the whole tricking the agent guy into giving him a gun and then shooting the agent guy in the end. Um, it, it felt a little rushed to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit like having a twist for the sake of having a twist and ending on a powerful literal gunfire moment. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I need to watch it again and pick up on some nuance leading up to that decision, but it felt a little bit too sudden for me. And it kind of took me out for a second. I don't know. How did you feel about that? Omar's decision in the end to do that. I mean, I, I understood it, you know, once when once the once the credits were rolling, like, okay, I kind of see where 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 you came from, but like you said, there's no really solid lead up to that, and um, it seemed like his gripe should have been with that that other guy who tricked him into leaving Nadia so that he could get with Nadia. It seemed like that's where he should have been focusing his yeah. his ire. It's I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe to another viewer that might put that ending might put him or her off because it's just so so all of a sudden. And I don't know, like a small editing thing. I think when you have an ending as shocking as that, you don't just pull up the end credits immediately because Mm -hmm. that's what happened with Omar. I mean, as soon as the gunshot happened, it cut to black, just the credits started rolling. I think you getting so nitpicky but 
I think you need like five, five to ten seconds of just blank screen to absorb what just happened for that to have an impact because it almost felt like it's, yeah. it was throwaway. Yeah, it, like it felt like having a, an exclamation point at the end of your movie just for the sake of having one without making yeah. it feel impactful. Now, maybe there is a key um, moment that sets up that ending that I just missed, like a crucial thing that someone listening is going, what are you talking about that I just completely missed? But um, for right now, it feels a little um, lopsided to me, that ending. Would you say it's a bad ending? Um, I, th- I don't think it's a bad ending. I just don't know how well it's handled. So I feel like it, it could have been done better or built up to a little more carefully. And then again, maybe I just missed something, but um, it felt like it didn't quite stick the landing. Yeah, it was promising at the beginning, especially the, it, it started on a very energetic sequence already. I mean, the one that he was climbing and what a way to start the film and that slowly digressed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all that parkour yeah <laughs> he's gorgeous I just have to say that and uh, that's true yeah that's true <laughs> and one last film The Hunt mm-hmm. so I really like The Hunt uh, that's kind of why I was saving it for the last uh, one um, I'm a big fan of Mads Mikkelsen um, the lead actor here Um so this was actually the only film in this lineup that I had seen prior to you inviting me on here. Um, I think The Hunt is a dark little film that tackles some very troubling ideas, but I think it does it in a very careful way. And it's so funny how it's been, what, seven years since this movie was making the rounds and we are now in an environment where we need to analyze this movie through a completely different lens. Yes. I still think it holds up. I think there's some subtleties here that some 2020 critics seem to miss. Like I know a few people who have just recently seen this movie and watched it through the lens of whole me too moment and take great issue with the movie but i think that does a disservice to the film although i completely understand where that belief is coming from but i think there's a little bit more going on in the movie that deserves being picked apart a little bit um how do you feel about the hunt i'll take the word from your mouth troubling that's the word that i've been it's been recurring in my brain the whole time i was watching it um I remember it being a hard watch, but mm-hmm. yeah, now it's just, it, it, it's, it's uncomfortable in the right way. <laughs> it's deliberately uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and like is probably not the word that I would use for this film. I think it's a really powerfully made film and I think it poses really uncomfortable, but necessary questions because... Mm-hmm. We're now in the moment where people say, like, believe all women, those mm-hmm. kinds of rhetorics. But at the same time, these cases are not 
out of the blue are, are not really mm-hmm. just a figment of an imagination they're having cases like this and i think the film sets it up well when i think that scene where the kids showed what's the name of the kid girl k um clara 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 um clara Clara. when they showed her the porn Mm -hmm. and the scenes that after that i think that establishes it well it that establishes the conflict well. Because I think without that, then I think we might have a different reception to what was going on. But mm-hmm. it's just that it's so uncomfortable because, of course, Clara, 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 her, it was not her choice, of course. And then the brother, the, the kids were just assholes and showing the pornographic stuff to the kid. And then the mm-hmm. community... And especially the parents became so defensive and hostile because they fear uh, the lead character. And the lead character is, you know, he is a good person. That's why he didn't immediately retaliate to the accusations. I think it's just so uncomfortable when everyone is in an unfortunate position. There, And the film was handling this topic without pointing a finger to a very specific person. That makes it a more uncomfortable experience, but... Yeah, so absolutely believe in believing women when things um, happen. But something very interesting that this movie does is Clara never really accuses him of anything. Yeah. It's It all starts with a misunderstanding. So in the classroom, she kisses him inappropriately. She's a child. She doesn't understand. And he, as a very responsible adult, kind of takes a step back and says, that's not okay. And she takes, you could say she takes offense to it as a child, not understanding why he's rejecting her kiss, or at least that's how she sees it. And she's upset. And when she's speaking to, um, I believe she's the principal of this school. uh, He says that, Mr. Lucas is ugly and his penis points up to the sky, which is a reference back to that pornographic film that she heard earlier. And she has never seen his penis. She just associates this idea with people who are gross or people who are bad. And this principle who has heard this um, takes what she has heard as an accusation. And it's hard not to when those are the words that you're presented with. And she alerts the authorities. They have that parent teacher meeting where she, I think unethically at that point tells all the parents uh, about what has happened. I feel like that was not the right way of going about that, but that's just, you know, my opinion. So everything kind of snowballs from that moment. Um, And so I think it's very important to keep in mind that this movie is not about someone making an accusation. It's about someone being misunderstood. And so that's why I think it's, it gets a little bit mistreated, this movie does, when some people boil it down to a movie about not believing a little girl. Because she actually says several times that nothing happened. 
but the adults don't believe her in that moment because they think she's suppressing memories or she doesn't understand or she's being too forgiving or blaming herself, etc. So it, in a way, kind of turns around and becomes a story about not believing a little girl when she says that nothing happened. So there's a whole lot going on in this movie that I find um, fascinating and worth picking apart. And it's all held together by Mads Mikkelsen's really great riveting performance as this guy who has been, whose life has been entirely ruined because of a misunderstanding, which, and again, it's understandable why this misunderstanding happened. Or did I say that right? It's understandable why this misunderstanding occurred. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole lot going on here that I, I really find cool as hell. And um, I really like the pace of this movie. I think it builds very well. Um, I, I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, I am sur- not, not, I, I should not have been surprised, but I am just astounded by how powerful his work is in this film. And mm-hmm. I remember at the time he wasn't really taken seriously like as a contender for best actor because that was a crowded year for best actor i mean when you have tom hanks and oscar isaac not nominated that that's mm-hmm. a tough field and just looking back now I'm just like oh my gosh this performance is unbelievable and yeah i think i think the hunt is worth a, an, an episode on its own <laughs> just because of how yeah. many things it discusses and what people would say about it um, I do have one question about the girl. Um, mm-hmm. He kissed Lucas, right? Lucas. I'm bad yeah. at names. Uh, Cloud kissed Lucas, and that happened after she saw the pornographic videos. Yes. But she already had an affinity for him, you know, maybe as like a teacher, or we don't know. Um, yeah. Do you think she did that because of what she saw, or was it a, really a thing that she, you know, just you? Know, well, she she definitely already had an affinity for him. Um, as a teacher, you could say as a surrogate father figure. I mean, she has a father, um, but Lucas, I think, is like an additional stand-in paternal figure in her life they're also neighbors if i recall so um their relationship is very tight in a lot of ways so i think that pornographic film may have given her some sort of idea that that is how affection is expressed um so maybe that was part of the reason why she decided to kiss him on the lips and, uh, you know, he in- instinctively pushes away and he's like, that's not all right. Um, it's not something we do. Yeah. And, uh, and she becomes very upset because uh, she cares for him a lot. And I think she, she sees his reaction as a total rejection of her feelings. And she interprets them as he does not share her feelings. And that's when she, uh, she gets angry and 
expresses that he's ugly and this is what his penis looks like because she's referencing back to that video and her her brother's friend making fun of the male pornographic actor's penis she just repeats almost word for word yes what she's heard described like so a rod. like a rod pointing toward the, the sky or something like that and she repeats it almost word for word and it's it's i'm sure very jarring to hear a five-year-old say something yeah quite like that so so it's understandable why uh, everyone at that school and all the parents um, believe her. So there's a whole lot going on in this movie, and it's very complicated. <laughs> and um, I really like it. Uh, I like things like this. I'm weird. <laughs> um, I think out of this five, I think the hunt is really strong, but I think this is the one that I am going to probably the least chance of me revisiting soon just mm-hmm. because of how yeah. painful it was but no it's a hard movie to watch yeah yeah really hard so interestingly uh the hunt the missing picture and omar are and also the great beauty were all can premieres and yeah yeah Mikkelsen won best actor at Cannes the missing picture won unset of regard and omar won special jury prize at unset of regard um, yeah, the broken circle breakdown is the only one that's not from from can here. So let's go to the shortlisted ones. The films that were shortlisted are an episode in the life of an iron picker from Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Grand Master from Hong Kong, the Notebook from Hungary, and Two Lives from Germany. Um, of those films, the only one that I've seen is the Grand Master. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen it since it came out, um, but I remember it being very visually striking and gorgeous and um, the production design, costume design being top notch and uh, it being a very thrilling film to watch. Uh, seems uh, like a surprise that it did not get into this lineup considering it is nominated for cinematography and I think costume design yes. at the Oscars. And yet it misses foreign language film. Uh, seems like if anything, that would be the, sh- the shoe in category. So um, yeah, I, I dig the grandmaster. I should, re- I should um, revisit it. Yeah. I, like I said, I revisited it back to back with the great beauty. Um, those nominations for cinematography and costume design Cinematography, I think it was nominated for ASC, but costume design, I don't think that was widely predicted. So well-deserved and just stunning visuals. I would have wanted it to be also nominated for production design and score. Mm-hmm. Just really gorgeous time, though I also have some sort of detachment with the story in it. What's what's mm. what's wrong with me? I'm detached with these gorgeous films. Um, yeah, but the rest, an episode in the life of the iron of an iron picker, that was a bit of a surprise. It was shortlisted. Um, I should not have been surprised since the director was the director of No Man's Land, which won in two thousand one, mm. and this one is almost like a docu drama, um, very uh, small production, and then the Notebook. Um, a World War II film from Hungary and then Two Lives in Germany. I, 
I am not passionate about any of these films mm. at all. I mean, the Grandmaster's visuals, yes, but other than that, I think they did a good job with selecting the five from these nine. Um, mm. Yeah. So let's just give a shout out to the other nominees this year that were also not in English. Um, Ernest and Celestine from France, animated feature. The Wind Rises from Japan, also animated feature. And Golden Globe nominated for foreign language film. The Act of Killing, Denmark, Norway, UK, documentary feature. And The Square, Egypt and USA, documentary feature. This was a very American Oscars. <laughs> I mean, mm. not really in the major categories. Have you seen any of these four? Yeah, I've seen The Act of Killing, which is a fascinating movie. Um, I haven't seen it since it came out. It's it's a difficult movie to watch as well, but in like a completely different way. Because it's, uh, if I remember right, it's a documentary about um, a filmmaker who is using famous imagery from cinema to recreate executions starring a real life executioner and you kind of see how this guy reliving his almost glory days for legal killing how he lives off of it and then at some point starts to become troubled by it and it's almost like without the use of all this high drama and production value, it almost never would have sunk in for him. It's, it's a neat movie. And I think uh, cinephiles definitely ought to check out if they have not. Yeah, it's, it's a disgusting, disturbing film. Especially mm -hmm. when, they, when the actual killers were telling the story and how graphic detail they mm -hmm. were telling stories of how for example um how raping a girl is like heaven or how they kill the man using the legs of a table it's deeply mm -hmm. deeply disturbing and so glad they nominated this um Ernest and Celestine is a delight <laughs> and I haven't seen The Wind Rises um yeah Let's now go to the other submissions. So for this year, they had 76 submissions. Uh, first timers were Moldova, Saudi Arabia, Montenegro, and Pakistan submitted for the first time in 50 years. Um, I think the two snubs here that were short, that were not shortlisted are The Past from Iran and Wajda from Saudi Arabia. Uh, mm. Have you seen The Past? I don't think so. I'm familiar with it. I remember it being one of those movies that was making a lot of people's list. Um, but I think it also kind of slipped through for me like The Great Beauty did. Have you seen it? Um, uh, yeah. Uh, for, a thir for the third year in a row, 2015, 14, 13, this is one of those weird years that I have seen a bit of the submissions. For this year, I've seen 27. <laughs> like... Um, don't ask me how I saw those. Um, but yeah, I think the past is a major Oscar Fadi film. 
it got nominated for Globes, Critics Choice, and it won a National Board of Review. It's this is a surprising snub. At the, I remember at the time it won Best Actress for at Cannes. Its lead actress is an Oscar nominee, Berenice Bejeau. Yeah, mm. I'm still pretty surprised why they did not even shortlist this because if this made it in, um, I think from all of the submissions that I have seen, this is my number one. And oh. yeah, and Wajda from Saudi Arabia, first film to be shot inside Saudi Arabia first Saudi Arabian film by a woman director. It's an inspiring hmm. story. It's pretty sweet. It's I should definitely check it out then. Yeah. It's a girl who wanted to join like, I don't know. No, it's, it's not spelling bee. I think it's a Quran reading contest because she wants to ride oh. a bike. But it's kind of a taboo for a girl to ride a bike in Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia. So, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, wasn't um, Chile's nomination Gloria? Yes. So I have seen Gloria. Um, I remember really liking it. Um, it was recently remade with Julianne Moore called Gloria Bell. Um, same director, Gloria. if I remember correctly. Yeah, I have. Um, uh, I haven't seen Gloria since it came out, mm-hmm. but I remember thinking, I remember having fonder feelings toward Gloria than I did Gloria Bell. Um, I recommend checking out Gloria. It kind of tackles a lot of the same ideas as The Great Beauty in a way. Um, this idea of an older person kind of reigniting their life and uh, deciding to live out their final years as best they can. Um, but I, if I remember correctly, Gloria has a little bit more humor and heart that I think was kind of lacking from The Great Beauty. Yes, <laughs> and I think a more engaging lead character and performance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, Paulina Garcia is a delight in Gloria. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to think of comparing Gloria to Gloria Bell and their Shot for Shot remake. Um, it's close, yeah. Yeah. Same director, so he just, he just <laughs> told the same story with Julianne Moore in English. Yes. Um, yeah, that was a delight, and I think it. She came close to my personal top five for best actress that year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, she's fabulous, as I recall. Yes, and yeah, I'm just gonna maybe quick quick mention to the other. I think that's significant. Were um, Borgman from Netherlands, and that was freaking disturbing. It's about like, um, okay. it's, I don't know if a, a weird man who suddenly uh, slowly terrorizes like this family and, and whoops. So yeah, slowly terrorizing the family, but yet kind of making alliances within. So hmm. he's like, what was it Kate called? Borgman. Okay. Um, and the origin of Borgman is like they're evil angels who transform into humans, but we don't see the transformation thing. It's just like they're already mm. humans who came in. Um, pretty disturbing, but also pitched black comedy. Um, I I just have to do this. Uh, this was the year when three of the submissions were about 
Filipinos. <laughs> you have Metro Manila from United Kingdom, which was nominated for a BAFTA. And then Iloilo from Singapore, which won Camerador at Cannes. Interestingly, the one that has the least exposure was the one that was actually submitted by the Philippines called Transit. And that film is in Filipino and Hebrew because it's about overseas workers in Israel. So... And it was this was a year. <laughs> this was a year where like, oh yeah, three films about Filipinos and the one with the least buzz is the film from the Philippines actually. So hmm. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So to the films that were not submitted, this one has a pretty big um film. Blue is the warmest color. Oh right. That that's the one that won at Cannes. Over yeah. a great beauty. Yeah. Okay. I remember yeah. reading that now. Yeah, so it won Palm d'Or, was nominated for Globe, and then BAFTA nominee won at Critics' Choice, and it won New York Film Critics, Los Angeles, and National Society. Mm-hmm. This was not eligible because for some reason they decided to release it on October 9, and the cutoff for like the calendar for foreign language film is October 1 from the previous year to September 30. Oh. Okay. And the local distributor in France released it in October 9. And mm-hmm. they said that they were actually going to do a qualifi- qualifying run, which is like an Oscar thing all the time. But the French selection committee said no. They should just go wide immediately. That's why they pulled it to October 9. Mm-hmm. I think if this was submitted by France and was nominated we might have a different conversation in foreign language film mm-hmm. I th- yeah i think it definitely could have been nominated um i'm not sure about the win perhaps it could have i remember i saw that movie at the cinema back when it came out wow. and for some reason it just did not click with me um i've only seen it that one time i never bothered to revisit it mm-hmm. but i remember not caring for it as much as my friends did not sure what what that means but um <laughs> i was okay with it not getting nominated because <laughs> it wasn't exactly my uh, cup of tea it didn't really work for me how about you um i have not revisited it since i watched it um i watched it with my mom <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, with all of its intense lesbian glory um mm-hmm. I did not love it, but I had more emotional connection with this than The Great Beauty. I understand yeah. the fanfare for this film. I think it would have been a really worthy nominee. But I, as, as just as I said, like we might have a different conversation in foreign language film if this was submitted. I was also thinking that maybe some of the voting members would be put off by the explicit sexuality or... Yeah. What do you think? Um, I could see it definitely getting nominated just because that movie was so of the moment. I remember when it when it premiered at Cannes, it was like instant controversy, and it was all it was being publicized as this movie that shook France, and like everyone had to see it. Which is why I think when I was in school, we all went to see Blue is the Warmest Color when it finally came to town, and um just based on the need to see it 
I can see it getting in. Um, I can see a lot of Academy members having watched it and being able to vote for it just simply by it being one of the few that they had seen. So um, it would have been representative of the year in film if it had been represented in this lineup. So I could see it getting in, but I'm not sure about it winning. I think you're right that uh, a lot of people in the Academy would be turned off by it and probably wouldn't even bother to watch it. So I'm not sure about a win, but um, I suppose anything's possible. Yeah, We've seen weirder things happen. <laughs> I think it would have just given the Grey Beauty um, a better fight. Because I think mm -hmm. when Oscar night came, like, okay, it's the Grey Beauty. Like, we already know yeah. it's going to happen. Um, I think right. if Louis Dorm's color was nominated, and maybe there was there would have been a competition because, yep, this was a pretty scattershot year. the The most the films that had the most exposure in the awards circuit were The Great Beauty, Blue is the Warmest Color, The Past, and those two mm -hmm. were not nominated. So it really cleared the path for The Great Beauty. Um, the Great Beauty, like in a in a matchup between The Great Beauty and Blue is the Warmest Color, The Great Beauty feels like old school art house mm -hmm. and Blue is the Warmest Color is like new school art house. So it would have been a very interesting battle of the ages there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I also remember the time the the, the the reports were exaggerated that there were some circulating things that the sex scenes in the bluest orange color is like 30 minutes like okay mm -hmm. and then when i watched yeah. it, like seven and a half or something like that like okay <laughs> so yeah it was really talked right. about and um i was gonna say i remember there being a whole discussion and controversy over whether the sex was simulated or whether it was real authentic sex happening on camera there was a whole lot of discussions happening about what the hell is going on in this movie so Yep, and then there were also discussions of since the the director was a man, like the sex mm. scenes were in the male gaze, and I think there were also yeah. some controversy about the director's relationship with the actresses and how he handled those scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I remember um, when I was in film school. I mean, people that were not even in film are asking us about this film. Mm -hmm. So, like, maybe that says something about how this film has really entered the conversation and it, they should have just, if they were, if they were able to submit this for France, then, yeah, we might have a different conversation now. Um, do you have any mm -hmm. other films that were not nominated that you think? Um, that sums up everything that I had here in terms of, uh, international film okay <laughs> and uh <laughs> yeah i'll just do a quick thingy here um the lunchbox from india it premiered at Cannes, was bafta nominated it was another controversy because the indian committee selected a film that had no to very minimal festival presence the good mm -hmm. road over the lunchbox, which premiered at Cannes, got great reviews, nominated at BAFTA, stars the recently passed away Irfan Khan. So the pedigree was there for it to make it in. And the lunchbox is a 
crowd-pleasing feel-good story and a good road is... I, I don't know. The good role is pretty bad. I don't know. I, I was trying to find a kind way to say it's pretty bad, but it's pretty mm -hmm. bad. And apparently, the selection committee in the uh, in India thought that they did not want to be um, dictated what film to choose. So they quote unquote chose from their heart. So they went with a not popular The Good Road over The Lunchbox, which was the favorite. And then they also mm. some because I think the, the story of the lunchbox is about uh, like lunch <laughs> lunch boxes that were being delivered in offices and it gets lost. Okay. And some of the people in the selection committee said that that's not gonna happen in real life. So there were these reasons why they did not select the lunchbox. And again, that's another missed opportunity, I think. Um, like father, like son from Japan. Um, Hirokazu Koreeda, which was then nominated for Shoplifters in 2018. Right. Um, they selected, again, a film with very minimal festival presence. And I remember some people like, what the F? Why did you not submit like Father Like Son? Um, a hijacking from Denmark. I mean, they had The Hunt. But this was, I think this, mm -hmm. was, this was a solid number two for them because it also entered lists for best foreign language film, even if it was not submitted. Um, free fall from Germany. I mean, it's a gay love story. I like to give it a shout out. And then, yeah, yeah. And then I think again, I've been doing this for weeks, but China, 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 they have a problem with selecting films to submit. They have films that have great festival presence, but doesn't that, but doesn't make their country look good they do not right. submit that it's frustrating they have drug war which premiered at rome and a touch of sin which premiered at can one best screenplay they did not choose those china what's the problem uh yeah those are the films that i have here um yeah so let's now go to the final question after all of everything we've been discussed, do you think The Great Beauty was a deserving winner of this category? I understand why it won. I think The Great Beauty has um, a lot of merit and there's um, a lot going on there. So I understand why it won and I'm not mad that it won, but it's not the movie that I would have gone for. So I'm not sure if that answers your question the way you meant it to be answered. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I would I would even give a less clear answer. Um, it's fine. Like, like you said, I get it. Why they selected it. Um, it's the kind of film, out of all the five, I think it's the most... It, it's, it feels like the biggest production out of those five. It feels like the most yeah. uh, traditional in a sense, and the path has really cleared. They have the lunchbox out. They have Blue's the Warmest Color out. They have the past out. They have Watch It out. There was quite no other option um, to go with. And I see where they're coming from. I'm, I love parts of it, but in general, I am indifferent. Like, okay. 
Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, since you have seen four and I've seen five, but my number five is Broken Circle Breakdown. So, that, so let's rank yeah. those four from four to one. Okay. So what's your number four? My number four is going to be Omar. Um, I thought this was a fun, thrilling little movie with a gorgeous lead actor whose butt we get to see. But yes. it ultimately doesn't, uh, it doesn't have quite the payoff in the end that I wish it did. And I'm not sure ultimately what it has to say that is unique from any other movie coming out from this region. So um, Omar is going to be my number four. And it's also my number four. It feels unfinished in a way. I think it can be polished more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, lovely lead. <laughs> yep. So yeah. And your number three. What's your number three? My number three is going to be The Great Beauty. Um, the Great Beauty's got a lot going for it. Uh, once you really start to look for all the things it has going for it. Um, but it's not quite as dramatically engaging as I would like it to be, especially for a film of this length. And ostentatious cinematography is not quite enough for me. Uh, and the lead actor kind of leaves things to be desired. So um, The Great Beauty is only my number three. And my number three is also The Great Beauty. I think I just put it above Omar and The Broken Circle Breakdown because its strengths are really uh, remarkable. But <laughs> I think I've written it in my notes three times. I just wrote, I can't connect. <laughs> I can't mm -hmm. connect with this story uh, a lot. I mean, I did, but a bit halfway through. I'm interested, what's your number two? My number two is The Missing Picture. Um, I really think this movie is bold in a lot of ways, which is funny because of how simple it tells, how simply it tells its story and how it's able to present these very dire, bleak moments in a person's life and a very bloody time in history and give it to its audience in a way that is approachable and digestible while still having a lot of impact. So um, I think it's very creative and it's a very creative and um, powerful little movie that I think handles its material very well. So um, The Missing Picture is my runner up in this category. My number two is The Hunt. Story well told. It's, yeah, and it's just a powerful deep performance again and really doesn't leave you immediately after you watch it it's it has a staying power and this would have been like a solid choice for the win i just have um, stronger feelings for my number one <laughs> and your number one is <laughs> my number one is the hunt um it's it's hard to say that you enjoy a movie like the hunt given what it's about, but it's the movie that 
uh, grabs me the hardest and doesn't let go. And I think it has a fantastic leading performance here from Mads Mikkelsen, who I think should have been a contender in this lead actor lineup here at the Oscars. And um, this movie doesn't hold back. Uh, and there's a whole lot of complex uh, thoughts and feelings going on here that um, I think deserve to be analyzed from every angle. And uh, to boil this down to an anti-Me Too movie in the year of 2020, I think is um, a bit uh, short-sighted. I think there's a whole lot more going on in this movie than initially meets the eye. So um, it has all the complexity of the great beauty and all of the boldness of the missing picture all rolled into one and a, a great leading man just to wrap in Omar. So it has everything going for it that these other films have all in one single package. So um, yeah, The Hunt is my number one in this uh, lineup of international films. Um, for me, my number one is The Missing Picture. I am just, I'm so happy that they acknowledge this film because it feels like it's so different from the rest of these films. I mean, aside from it's a documentary, but it's just a refreshing way to handle this dark, dark topic. And it it find a, it was able to find a way that's to tell the story that's very personal. And that's the kind of emotional connection I'm looking for in a film that I think I had more strongly uh, here uh, than the rest of the nominees. So, mm -hmm. yeah, those are our rankings. So thank you so much for discussing this film with me. And thank you so much for watching these films because, yeah, okay. so, yeah. It was nice watching a few of these for the first time. So it was a, it was a pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. And can you tell our listeners where they can find you and invite them to your work? Sure. So um, you can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Stanwick. Uh, you can listen to my podcast, Academy Queens, available probably wherever you listen to podcasts and Academy Queens has a Twitter, which is at Academy underscore Queens. I'm also on Letterboxd. If you do Letterboxd and you can occasionally see me writing for In Session Film and Filmotomy. So that's kind of what I'm up to these days. And you can find me at Carlos Ohano and at One Inch Barrier. Uh, last week, um, <laughs> last week I listed like the list of, the podcast platforms where you can listen to this podcast and as of a while ago i cannot confirm that we are now in apple podcasts as well as google Podcasts. so yay um got the good news <laughs> so yeah i think coming soon in more platforms and yep again i hope everyone stay safe and stay healthy and this is a goodbye for now Thank you so much for listening and together let us break that one inch barrier. Mm -hmm.